0: In today's show, we'll be talking to Kay Anders Erickson, Konradi eminent scholar and professor of psychology at Florida State University. Anders is going to be talking to us about his latest book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, which he co-authored with Robert Poole. Anders is going to tell us how lessons learned from decades of human research on human performance can help you improve your effectiveness as a business owner and maximize your leadership capabilities. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Chai. Craig, what do you find to be one of the most rewarding experiences you've had as a business coach?
1: I think there's a few. I love to watch them growing their expertise, growing their systems and methodologies and their processes in their business to refine their business and make it grow automatically in many cases.
0: Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about helping people on this journey from being a budding entrepreneur to becoming really a professional business owner. And as part of that transition, they really are becoming experts at how to run a business, not just experts on the thing that they did to start their business.
1: Yeah, they're able to really expand and really take a leadership role in making sure that every element of their business really reflects their brand and their vision of what they wanted it to be in the first place. And really the link between those two things is
0: developing a methodology, developing systems, developing process. And then it's the very deliberate practice and execution of that that can really help you
1: make that transition to becoming a professional. Yeah. And how do they do that? A lot of the processes that are put in place are to really develop their people too and to have processes and procedures in place and really be able to train their people to a level of proficiency that represents their brand. A case in point, one of my friends is a surgeon and one of the things we were able to work on is to be able to bring really refined processes in the training side of their business To make sure all of the medical assistants were learning and being able to do the procedures and assist the doctor in a consistent, high-level way. And you know,
0: Craig, there's a lot of science now, a lot of data from years of research that actually supports this notion of deliberate practice and how that can help you improve your results. And our guest today is an expert in this field. He is Kay Anders Erickson, Konradi eminent scholar and professor of psychology at Florida State University. Anders studies the measurement of expert performance in domains such as music, chess nursing, law enforcement, sports, and business, and how expert performers attain their superior performance by acquiring complex cognitive mechanisms and psychological adaptations through extended deliberate practice. Good morning, Anders. Welcome to Business Owners Radio.
2: Good morning. I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to you. We are, too.
0: We're very excited, certainly, to talk about your book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, that I know you wrote with your co-author, Robert Poole. Tell us a little bit about your work together with Robert over the years and what inspired you to write this book.
2: Well, a long time ago, I was really interested in, you know, how people actually could improve their performance within different domains. And we did some original work on memory and and then extended that to chess and When I moved down to Florida, to Tallahassee here in Florida State, Robert moved also down, and we had a common friend, and we just started talking about this research, and Robert, who is a science writer, you know, felt this might really be interested to a much broader audience than, you know, the more academic audience. So, that's almost like 10 years ago, we started talking about, you know, what are the kind of ideas here that might be interesting and relevant for people in general. And then I guess about five years ago, we started developing a book proposal. And and then eventually, I guess the last couple of years, you know, we spent actually writing the book. And I guess I'm very pleased with how it came out. I really felt it was sort of a good process here trying to talk to Robert so he would be able to do an even better job sort of explaining what some of these ideas are. And I've heard people reading it who felt that they really kind of got excited and could understand these ideas.
0: Yeah, you really framed the book with so many great stories, some of them directly from your research and also other anecdotes that really make this accessible for anyone. You know, a lot of our listeners first heard about you from Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, and the concept of 10,000 Hours of Practice. How does it feel to have someone like Gladwell, who's a wonderful author and a gifted writer, popularize your work, but perhaps maybe mischaracterize some of your learnings?
2: Well, you know, I had some mixed feelings, and it was surprising that Gladwell didn't contact me to to verify the facts because, unfortunately, he misread one of our reports. So this idea that there's something magical about 10,000 hours really isn't supported by our research. What is supported is that even the most talented, if there is such individuals, seem to spend tremendous number of hours before they actually reach an adult expert level. Now, the thing that I really want to kind of emphasize is that Gladwell is talking about hours of practice, uh, whereas that basically people, I think, assumed meant, you know, if you just kept on doing something for 10,000 hours, you would kind of magically become an expert. Now, what we've demonstrated was that we really need to talk about deliberate practice. And in our case, we looked at music students who were studying with a teacher. So we counted the hours that these music students had actually been studying various practice goals that were given by their teachers. And they worked on them by themselves, sort of engaging in solitary practice. And if you added up those hours that they actually did that, where they actively worked on trying to reach a higher level of performance, that's when we got the, you know, many thousands of hours that seem to be necessary for somebody to reach an expert level.
0: Yeah, you know, that distinction is important. Much of your book talks about deliberate practice and the characteristics of that. And you also talk about purposeful practice. And how do these two things relate?
2: Well... I think the big difference is when people just do something, you know, they're engaged in some activity and they just try to do better. We point out that that actually doesn't really count as practice. So I guess my favorite example is you're playing doubles and you miss a backhand volley. Well, the game is going to keep going on. And if you get the same situation a a day later, you're not going to do any better. So If you contrast that now with what we call deliberate practice, you actually have a coach. That coach can allow you now to stand ready for the backhand volley, so you actually get the fundamentals down, and then eventually make it more difficult, and then eventually embed it in the actual play, so you're now able to incorporate that improved backhand volley into your regular game. And we argue that, one or two hours with a coach is going to make so much more difference than maybe years or even decades of just engaging in doubles play.
0: Yeah, and that's something that's not always intuitive to us because, you know, you actually talk about the fact that over time, your performance may actually degrade quite a bit as you become more automatic in what you do.
2: Yeah, and that's especially true in those situations where you don't have immediate feedback. Now, when you play tennis, you can see whether the ball was successful or not. But if you take a doctor who's actually listening to heart sounds, that doctor is trying to hear for heart problems. But if that doctor missed a heart problem, he wouldn't immediately know that he missed it. And I think that's true in a lot of professional situations that the consequences of your interaction with somebody may actually take weeks or months before it's clear here whether it was a positive outcome or not. So what we found with the doctors, that actually they get worse in identifying heart sounds and lung problems when they listen to it. The good thing is that if you actually take a doctor like that for a weekend, where you would give them now pre-recorded sounds, where we actually knew what the problem was with each sound, we can actually train them up to a level that at least corresponds to where they started out, when they actually started their general practice.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. You know, you talked about in your book, the keynote from your 2003 speech at the American Association of Medical Colleges and how you applied that idea to try to increase the accuracy of mammogram reading. Could you share
2: that? Well, mammogram reading is, is a very interesting example because you get the mammogram and you do your best job, but you really don't know whether you miss something Or if you basically ask somebody to come back here for a biopsy when there really wasn't a problem, because that's going to be a delay here of months. And and I guess in those cases where they're really not having a cancer, that's only really knowable within the first two years. So if you haven't come down with a cancer then basically you would be cancer-free. So here there's this opportunity of actually using old mammograms and now allow doctors here to try to diagnose a mammogram and they can get immediate feedback about not just whether there was a cancer, but maybe also where it was sort of located. And that type of training uh, seems to be really key for individuals to be able to improve.
1: Anders, I know in one chapter you talk about the gold standard, and when we think about businesses and some of the coaching we do, this gold standard is sort of the level of performance for the business's brand and how they do their expert operations and practice. How do we identify that gold standard and get it into a practice format?
2: I think that is one of the really interesting problems that any expert performer has. You know, how would you be able to kind of identify something where you can now get immediate feedback? Obviously, this opportunity here of possibly learning from other people's experience, assuming now that you had videotapes of interactions with people who have had successes or even for that matter, problems, you know, you would be able to kind of in a very condensed way learn and one could then short circuit that long period before there's really a feedback in terms of a customer response or somebody making a decision here to basically make an investment or make purchases from the business. But I think basically this idea here of going down. So sales would be one area where it seems clear that by actually monitoring basically what happens with different clients. And ideally in those cases where, where there is a relatively short time period between them making a decision and, and your interactions, you know, that would be kind of a way here of, of monitoring. And I think by thinking about a sort of what are the bottom line criteria. And I remember talking to somebody who said that they actually improved their business considerably once they actually deducted the sales costs. So if a salesperson had negotiated some services to the person, so if you really looked at the net profit to the firm, that was a much better measure than the volume of sales Because some of the salespeople with the biggest volume were also the one who had negotiated very special contracts with their customers. So that ended up actually not benefiting the firm as much as this net profit. I think by analyzing the things that people repeatedly do and then try to think about what are the outcomes, the good ones, and especially identifying the ones that are particularly favorable to your company.
1: And I was looking at the purposeful and deliberate practice. I like your format, starting out with specific goals and defining where you're going to focus on. But do you really take specific goals down to a real detail, not general goals, but really specific ones, and then getting feedback? Could you talk a little bit about those?
2: Well, if you're going to change your behavior, it's not useful to you to get some general goals. So we talk a little bit about the possibility here of making presentations to customers. And what some of the consultants have shown here is that if you can actually make each of these cases and having your colleagues who are also listening in on the sales presentation kind of monitor specific aspects, then you actually are much more likely here to get useful feedback from your colleagues about things that could have been done slightly different and potentially more effectively. But it's that gradual growing of skill, and we show that that's true in all of these different domains, that you don't have any sudden improvements. What you see is that individuals work on very specific aspects of their game and then improve that and then integrate it into their performance. And over time, by actually making these gradual improvements you end up with differences in performance that almost look qualitative rather than quantitative
0: you know, one of the examples in the book you used was a business coach named Art Turok from Kirkland Washington and how he has incorporated some of the principles of deliberate practice into his training and coaching of corporate leaders
2: right and he would have that idea here of pinpointing something specifically that would then be a useful discussion after you have the event. And one thing that we see here, which is a big difference between business and sports and music, is that musicians spend maybe 99% practicing in preparation for their performance. And the same thing with athletes, whereas out in the business world, it's almost like the reverse, where you spend very little time dedicated to actually training. And there's many interesting examples here where you either can use your colleagues as individuals that you're now making a presentation to, so you actually would get training on that particular presentation several times before you would actually do it in the real world. And in medicine, you know, they have these professionally trained patients that know what symptoms a given disease has. So now the medical students and residents they will actually encounter this patient, and then actually train on that patient, as opposed to be training on a real patient, where the consequences of mistaken diagnosis would be pretty severe.
0: Yeah, the same is true in airline training, right? In pilot training in general, where we simulate different situations that come up, where we can give, especially where the consequences of being wrong are very high. <laughs> We're now in a safe environment. Uh, You can put people into those simulations. And again, in that deliberate practice method, they're getting real time feedback from a trainer or coach and they're absorbing that and it can help their learning in a whole different way. And it's interesting to think about how to apply that in business. And it's almost a complete shift in thinking, even the way you're describing it now from the presentation point of view. What is the goal of practicing the presentation? It really requires a, a little bit of a shift.
2: Well, but I think that's so exciting here that once you start thinking of individuals and employees in your firm as actually giving them that opportunity to enhance their skills, it's going to benefit, I think, everyone. And once you have an environment here where people are actually encouraged to learn. And I think one thing that I find interesting is in in businesses that some of the companies have identified in a problem situation. So if you have a crew operating a machine, one of the most costly things is when the machine breaks down. So if you actually invested in training and actually had people who would be able to deal now with a breakdown very rapidly, that seemed to be much more cost-effective than other things that would be related to the normal production. And I think in airlines, is a very nice example where... There are these consequential effects that if you can train those, that's going to make a tremendous impact if you're trying to evaluate things and lives saved and and other kinds of things that are very hard to describe. And I think the same thing in emergency medicine, you know, they're basically making sure here and training individuals because there are certain conditions that if you don't diagnose them early, that could have lethal consequences. So that actually is something that you need to train because the natural occurrence of these events is pretty low. But once they do occur, that's actually when you need the training to be ready and now be able to perform at a level that makes a huge difference.
1: And there's one of the elements in the practice that you're defining in the book involves the comfort zone. A great analogy you have is tennis players getting to a certain level, even golfers, and feeling comfortable that they're able to do most of the game and most of the shots and they're sort of average with the rest of their peers and playing and enjoying the game. However, if they want to progress further They have to get into more of a deliberative practice and even stretching and getting out of their comfort zone. What are some of the motivators that happen there?
2: I think in order to perform well, you're really engaged now in how you need to think. In the book, we talk about these mental representations, your ability to basically be able to understand and represent the current situation you're in, and maybe even just as important, your ability to anticipate what is going to happen. And I think that is basically where you actually see the possibility of gaining improvement. Because if you can think through and plan ahead of time, you're going to be in a better situation, not just doing a better performance, but you're also going to be aware of where there is a violation here between what you expected and what actually did happen. And that then will be a real useful cue for you then to try to think about, you know, what is it that you could have been doing next time that would actually eliminate or dramatically reduce the probability of a negative outcome? And I guess I'm really intrigued here by some of the surgeons who actually, you know, have a plan. So they spend a lot of time thinking about the patient and looking at x-rays and other kinds of images. So they can actually do the surgery in their head and actually anticipate now certain types of problems. And then when they come to the surgery, they basically will then have the opportunity even to learn because sometimes they are going to anticipate incorrectly, but then they can go back to work with their surgical team to kind of ask, you know, what is it that we could have done here to eliminate this? And when they actually chart the number of adverse events, you see this dramatic decrease over a 12-year period that they did. And I think basically that once you have that attitude, and, and in most professionals, you know, they have pride in doing a very good job where they feel that they're providing positive effects for people's lives. And I think that's particularly true for people in medicine and healthcare and all these service industries. But I think that idea here that in order to improve, if you just relax and just keep doing what you normally do, then you won't be able to tell here what is it that you could have done and what is it that you potentially could have anticipated and thereby actually been ready to deal with the difficult situation in a way that really reduced the consequences of it.
1: Yeah, I like your representation of attitude really makes such a huge difference and and along the lines of motivation what keeps you going the tenacity to continuously try to change a process
2: and that's something that i've found with people who are really outstanding performers they go out of their way to be able to get information about outcomes so instead of actually trying to avoid negative information they actually go out of their way to seek out that information because they know that that information is going to be the most helpful for them to make adjustments so they actually will have even better outcomes.
1: Andrews, I really appreciate the time. One of the curiosities I had was, you know, how are you applying a lot of the learnings that you've had over the decades into your own practice?
2: Well, you know, I think I've always tried to be as successful as a researcher as I can. And thinking back on it, I've been working with uh, very successful researchers. So I've been in that situation where they actually have been helping me improve. And I remember one time, one paper that was very successful and even got into science. My senior collaborator basically told me, okay, you need to write this and I'm going to give you feedback. And I think we cycled through 35, maybe 40 different versions here before he said it was good enough for him to now go in and actually make some additional changes before we submitted it. But I think that idea here of actually, as a teacher, helping somebody develop for themselves by giving them a lot of feedback, it takes a lot of time, but I really do think that that incorporates this possibility here of actually generating and building your performance. And I think seeking teachers and mentors who've actually had a lot of experience and finding ways here that you would be able to share and involve them somehow in your activity, I think that allows you to do a lot of learning that wouldn't actually have to have negative consequences, like, for example, getting rejection here and then never being able to submit it again to a particularly prestigious journal. But I think there are some really wonderful opportunities ahead for those individuals who are motivated to improve their ability to achieve.
0: I agree. Well, I want to thank you again. Craig and I have so enjoyed this conversation with you today, Anders, and wish you continued success with this book and the rest of your research.
2: Well, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking to you. And as I said here, I'm really interested in exploring the possibilities here of applying these ideas to all aspects of professional and everyday life.
0: Our guest today has been psychology professor Anders Ericsson, co author of Peak with Robert Poole secrets of the new science of expertise. You know, Craig really tore through the audiobook copy of Peak, and we would love to share a free copy with you. Just go to our show notes at businessownersradio.com where you can learn more about Kay Anders Erickson and this episode, and also download a free audiobook copy of Peak from audible.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.